Hello, and welcome back. This is Colin Keeley here. And I'm Brent Sanders. And we are two guys buying and building wonderful internet companies. Yeah, and while we're building those companies, Colin, you did another write-up. So Colin's been doing these profiles or research projects, which are always really interesting. And the latest one was the Pritzkers, right? Which is, if you're from Chicago, you know that name. And if you're in the United States, you might know that name. But basically, story of, right, two brothers. I mean, maybe you can dive right into it. I mean, this is something that you tweeted out, what, a couple of days ago? Yeah, I, I don't know the whole Pritzker family story. I knew them. So in Chicago, they like, they're very wealthy. They sponsor a bunch of stuff. And that's cool. The random schools are named after them. I knew them as like the founders and owners of Hyatt. Like, I think that's how they made the bulk of their money. But these two guys built like an acquisition empire back in the 50s. And so a Marvin group at the name of it, it started just like any kind of search fund today, any acquirer, they bought a struggling bicycle manufacturer for $95,000. And so it was doing bicycles, baby rockets, wheelchairs, and only in 3 million in sales, I was losing money. So kind of like a classic, an individual could buy this tiny thing and turn it around. Their big thing was the assets were worth more than they paid for it. And they ended up dropping the unprofitable things and focusing on wheelchairs. But back it up. So it's two brothers. The family had a successful law firm. And these guys, one was a deal maker and a lawyer. So he went to law school. He's a prodigy, like finished high school at 14. And he, he trained pilots in the Air Force. And then he became like the wizard of structuring deals and avoiding taxes. And then Robert was the engineer and manager, the only engineer in like the whole group of Pritzkers, which there's a lot of them. And he was the one that turned around trouble companies. So Jay bought them, structured the deal, and Robert like was the operator, manager, turned them around. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah, they bought this first one. So they did a lot of small metal manufacturing things, which I just realized, I didn't think of it before, but my grandfather started a metal manufacturer in Chicago. He never was bought by them, right? But he was doing exactly the same. But over the decades, they rolled up a bunch of these small metal manufacturing and they kind of built out a repeatable playbook. So I'll just go through it. They had extreme price discipline. So Jay would buy these trouble companies and that was usually for 80% less than the book value. And a typical deal was highly levered with super small equity checks. So in one deal, they put in 20 million in cash and they got 94 million in assets and 325 million in tax benefits. Why would anybody sell to them with, at such a loss? So they only bought companies that like kind of had this. Uh, so it was always like they got into some hardship. There was some transition and a death. They were doing this back in the day. So the started first deal of 1953. They're both long dead. They died 10, 20 years ago now at this point. Plus, like I think the first one died in 99. But yeah, back then it's not like it is now where there's a million search funds out there doing this. Thing. So yeah, he, right, right. one of them said, so they were buying small manufacturers that no one wanted. So it's like tank cars, heat belt systems, piping and tubing. Someone called it smokestack factories. So it's like all the things that had smokestacks and no one cared about. <laughs> one of them said, only reason people sell to us is that their trouble companies sold at bargain prices. It was because no one else was doing it. Like no one else was even there to okay. offer money to them. They were known for moving fast and they worked super well together. So Jay was actually a lawyer. So he could look at the finances and also look at the risks as a lawyer. And he didn't have to consult anyone else. 
So he could turn around and make offers really quickly. And between the two of them, they had everything they needed and they didn't need outfit help. And so they want a lot of deals because they're able to do that. And maybe to this point, it sounds like I've been describing like basically sell everything for assets, but they're actually known for extreme organic growth. So after they buy these troubled companies, Robert would nurse them back to health. He cut the unprofitable lines, focused on the profitable ones, and then really pushed on growth. So they had a reputation for building up their acquisitions, not tearing them down. That's awesome. That's, that's a good story, right? Like, it's so easy to see, okay, I'm just going to pillage, essentially. But you're, you're getting such a deal. There's no reason to, to try to. I mean, obviously, this is a good reason, too, is build more wealth that way. And so they developed this great reputation and they tried to actually keep management intact. So not just gut it, replace everyone. And so they were viewed as almost the perfect owners. So you give them these full, like detailed financial reports. But besides that, they let you run everything yourself. So they're viewed as a great home and like everyone kind of trusted them and they continue to win deals for that way. And then in that spirit, there were no synergies. Like every deal had to live on its own and like be successful before they would do it. And Execs were basically completely autonomous. They weren't interfered with at all from the holding company. Long-term greeting. So they had a real commitment to investing in the things that they were buying. So they had a pursuit to being a low-cost producer. And to do that, they would invest heavily in like large machines and stuff like that, that standalone companies just could never do. So during a period where 40% of U.S. foundries went out of business, they actually invested heavily in 10x their revenue in the space, the size of their companies. And their head office was super small. They were the opposite of micromanagers. So they were viewed as a consulting organization. So they would step in kind of when you needed them to help out with tax, personnel issues, real estate, and just kind of offer advice. So it's very much management by abdication. You run your companies, we'll help out if you need us. Outcome, they sold 60% for like $4.5 billion to Warren Buffett. That was the public number. I think they sold the rest of it. Rest hasn't been disclosed. And at the end, they've owned, they own like a hundred plus kind of autonomous operating organizations in this factory space. So I actually had firsthand experience working with one of their, their companies. I just realized uh, it was a company called Prince Castle and their, their name. So they got, must've been bought by Mormon. I don't know the full story, but they made like a ton of machines for McDonald's, but that was their big thing. They were making egg cookers, timers, the, the little bins that sit with burgers in there, warming and toasting and refrigeration. There are all these sort of metal manufacturers, metal with some, some boards in there, like electrical microcontrollers. And that was it. I remember visiting the, the factory in, in Chicago or, or in the burbs is out by O'Hare. And uh, it was wild. It was, it's all the stuff that, that noise you hear when you go into McDonald's of the bee, the timer huh. going off, they, they make that. And so. I'm sure it's just one small slice of the portfolio, but almost like a central part of McDonald's. The cool thing, the reason I mentioned this, coolest thing they were working on in their R&D department was like a, a smell machine. It was like an, a, a spectrometer for, for smells. And they were kind of doing a study to see what smell do people like, do they spend more when they smell burgers? And they found that the Anecdotally, right? Like this was just part of the, the story from what they were saying is like the, the most attractive smell that they were realizing was like the smell of like actually like several hours old burgers. So they found huh. this like they have to toss the burgers, but if they let them sit and smell, people love the smell of that. It's like not gross. I mean, 
in McDonald's. No, no idea how much meat is actually in that burger. But either way, you can see like the, yes, these are small metal companies that factories turn into. But then also what was going on in Chicago at the time is McDonald's was a huge, huge growth story around that same time, starting in the 50s. So anyways, that was just one thing that actually I, I had done some software work at, at some point, some R&D stuff with them, but it was, it was just part of the, the, the giant conglomeration that Marmon became or is. Yeah, cool. I found the transition. Do you have any takeaways from this? I guess anything you want to implement? Yeah, in a- Vern? I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I feel like there was a whole bunch of other stuff around, like, you had a bunch of other points that I thought were interesting. One was around no synergies. So this was like one of the parts is that every company has to kind of stand on its own with, I feel like it is, that was my one takeaway from, from this was like, I think that's a rule we should kind of walk away with. I feel like when we do these, it's always good kind of, what, what are we pulling away from this? Especially if it's, and this is probably furthest in terms of all the profiles you've done. Mostly we've done software entrepreneurs or something like this, but in terms of just straight up business, having a portfolio of companies, having companies that can kind of meld into one another or have that attraction to say, oh, we have this and we could, we could kind of build a synergy and, and support one another. And it does feel dirty. And it was interesting to see that they were like, we're not touched. We don't do that. Like you have to stand on your own two feet and you can't rely on some other product that's doing well and kind of ride their coattails. I don't know. What, what was your take? Is there anything from, from this study that you were like, I, I, I would take away this and, and apply it to, to what we're doing? I mean, a lot of this stuff is not that different. Like moving quickly is awesome. And no synergies, long-term greedy. All that stuff is kind of similar to what we've talked about and I'm done in different respects. The one kind of takeaway I had is like, God, it must've been nice to think of doing this in the 1950s when no one else was doing it. And you're like literally the only person doing it. It's just so different than the software world today. So that was just my thinking of like, you're never going to buy a software company for less than 8% of book value or some crazy discount. It's just way harder to pull off. So I'm always thinking of like, what is that? It seems like, so I just came back from the SMB Bash and everyone's going after like the most crazy different little verticals. And everyone is kind of thinking of like, what niche should I do? And everyone else isn't doing yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough, right? Because everyone's competing and then like, we see it, we're at like, everybody's competing in software and, and all the, it, it does feel like it's well-trodden now. And yeah, if you think about what was going on in this day and age, it was a huge growth in the United, the United States, yeah, for World War II, I mean, it was just boom time and it was companies coming out, especially like these manufacturers, I would assume these metal shops were contributing to the war effort. I don't know that. So I guess I'm not a historian, but you see, this is like the beginning of sort of the modern era of American business where it's a form of private equity in the sense where people are coming in, they're acquiring, they're pulling all these things together. But I wonder if there is still room for this, right? So it's like, is it home service companies? That's why everyone's buying roofing companies and whatever else is trying to do roll-ups or whatever form of this, like the hold codes out there. I think it just has to be more about like your edge. So it's like, why are you going to be good at this? For us, I mean, people will choose us. Maybe we get a slightly better deal because of it, but it's not going to be like 90% off or something like that. Like maybe these were back in the day. So they get 
more like just organic growth. Why is it valuable? It's, even if you pay too much, it's because you're going to grow it quite a bit. And that justifies yeah. getting into space. So I think it's much more operationally intensive maybe now than it was back then to do this well. But you actually have to earn your return instead of just having this money falling in your lap to some yeah. extent. Yeah. And then one thing to mention about this name, I probably should put this at the beginning of the conversation. I mean, like I knew the name growing up in Chicago, right? There were just buildings named after it. And you said, was, was it a medical school named after it? I mean, it's so much stuff. It just has like the Pritzker Pavilion. There's Pritzker this, Pritzker that. And it, I, I wouldn't mention that it seems like they made tons and tons of money and they seem to prioritize giving it back. Like there definitely seems to be a philanthropic legacy that that family has walked away from as the result of either their sale or whatever. I mean, so happy to, happy to kind of remember that name and, and see where, where it kind of came from. Yeah. These guys are funny too. They definitely lost money on a good number of deals and they always would laugh about it. They had, they're kind of good sports about everything. Yeah. The Pritzker family has generally been very generous. JB follows me on Twitter. I think I've met him a few times. He's been super active, in like the venture capital scene in Chicago. And then now he's, he's governor, going to try to run for president at some point, probably, I'd imagine. And so he's not as active in the tech scene at all. Yeah, it's too bad. I mean, I, I, if I commend anybody who gets into politics, but I also question their motives. That's like, why would you ever want to do that? Yeah. But hopefully you realize like, hey, if you want to change something, you got to get involved. And unlike me, who's just like ignores it and just watch the world burn. <laughs> there are like... What do you so many of them now. There's like hundreds of Pritzkers in Chicago. Yeah. And yeah, they like, I don't know, 10 of them are billionaires on the single digit billionaires. There's a lot of wealthy people from this high. Yeah. I was going to bring them by other notes. So it's another kind of update is I came back from SMB Bash, so this like small business acquisition conference in Austin. The most fun part is talking to people buying super random businesses. So I'll just walk through a few of interesting ones. I hit one out names, but like the general profile. One guy bought a lot of small manufacturing companies. One guy bought one that makes the tags for military uniforms. And apparently that's just like printing money. And he was really excited to buy like, yeah. And he is like, he is the actual person that manufactures it. So he doesn't have to submit the bids to the government. Other people are doing that. And then they farm it out to him. So no matter who wins the bids, they're going to use him to actually manufacture it. Cause he's the only one that's like approved by the government to do it. So that was a great one. He was set on buying like an ice cream manufacturer next, or like a ice cream thing in his town that makes their own ice cream. And he wanted to do it. And someone swooped in and paid like 20 times earnings or something. As like, a, like someone buying a sports team, making some offer that doesn't make any sense because it's a prestigious thing to own in their town. So he was really fun. Another good one was this guy bought a Christian accounting firm. So accounting firm that started out of like a Bible study and everyone in the company went to the same Bible study all over their website, all about being Christian. And he's like, I'm a Christian, but we're no longer a Christian accounting firm. And so he's been like removing God from the business. He's taking it off the website and he's losing a few employees that are pissed about it. But he's also trying to get another half of the world as customers. Yeah. And man, it, it's kind of like, don't you want to go to, when, if we're going to pick a religion for accounting, would it be Christianity? Would it really be? Is that the first one you think of? I don't know about that. But yeah, it, it's nice to have an, a niche. I, I think there is a, a value to uh, casting a, a more broad net, right? It's like, 
you don't want to be, what's the word? You want to be as inclusive as possible to your customers. So, but yeah, that's funny. A, a Christian, I mean, I could see it for certain things, but hey, different strokes, different folks. I guess how many people, first of all, backing up, this was your first convention or conference since COVID. This is the first uh, you've been to. So I go to the Chicago booth, like TA one. I've done that a couple of times, but this is the first one of the, like the circuit, like you went to Holdco conference last year. I haven't done any of those, that capital camp, and those are kind of the three big ones, I think. Cool. And so it sounds like you got a chance to interface with a bunch of people that didn't know how tall you were, I would guess. Yes. Yeah. So many people like listen to this podcast and read my writing and just have absolutely no idea who I am. So even like close partners. We were going to bring on an operating partner we've talked to for like dozens of hours, probably. And he introduced his name and I was like, yeah, I know. I'm Gala. Yeah. I'm that was crazy. Time together. That's all. But yeah, I, I felt kind of good about that. It's just like a bunch of room full of people that know your name and no one knows your face. Kind of nice. A little anonymous. Oh, one of the random business I didn't mention that the Chenmark guys were there and one of their businesses is Pirate Ship Boat Tours. And so oh, wait, apparently it's just Prince Cat. Folks, sorry, I'm looking this up. I remember, I think, they, yeah, they were at speaking. One of the partners was at the whole Spook conference and spoke. And they, they had a couple, I thought they were rolling up landscaping companies. They do a lot of random stuff. Tons of people buying landscaping companies, but yeah, they're based out in Portland, Maine, buying a lot of random things down. But that is one of theirs. It's so, they're like a classic example of they'll buy a business that, just throws off cash and they have like two boats. It's never going to be 10 boats, but they're going to use that cash and redeploy it and buy other things with it. So yeah, they, they're remember, always interesting. I remember seeing one of the partners speak, one of the owners speak, and I really love, I mean, I enjoyed the, the talk, but the, the surprising thing was in these low-tech businesses, they were prioritizing like security, like internet security on technical security. I mean, say like IT security as like a, a core tenant, which I thought was really interesting and, and super valid, like a very updated way of looking at some of these kind of low tech businesses. Cause when you think of like, you don't need that much tech for some of these businesses, but still getting your database blasted or ransomed is, is not great either, but that's cool. The, the pirate ships, there's, there's a gentleman we know here in Cleveland that operates some of the party barges. Huh? They're, these are like the boats that go out on. I think it's the Cuyahoga River. I, I'm ashamed if I don't know this, but it's the river that runs through Cleveland, and it's you get a bunch of drunk people to come out and party on their on their barge. But it's when you introduce water, it, that's a tough business. Like there's a lot of things that can go wrong, and the, the safety, the fact that water can kill everybody, is it's kind of a, a straight part of that business model. That's like wow, it, everything's a lot more serious out on the water. So I give them props, but I like the I really want to go on a pirate trip though that would be awesome Portland Maine's nice you gotta get out there and try it sometime you should in the summer I mean it's brutally cold in the winter but that is true reflections from your trip most of the people there were not doing software companies so it was super cool to meet people in person like I think it's worth like a hundred zoom meetings actually we someone in person for the weekend but I don't know I, I still don't know whether it's great to be going to these Acquisition conferences, which are kind of cool. It's like talking to peers, or should we be going to more like software conferences and talking to like potential prospects more so? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's exactly how I, I felt a little out of sorts going to the whole co-conference. Like you're one of the only, there was like one other, I think Sure Swift was there, right? And it's like, but that was it. Everyone looked at me kind of funny, like, you know, they've got a roofing business. They've got a, this roll up. They've got, yeah, I, I, I don't know though, because I feel like a, I don't know what those software conventions are and it's less about I feel like acquisitions, acquisition, and the same things were kind of spoken about, but I got to say the, the people that aren't in software are generally a little more fun, I think. But again, I haven't been to a software conference, so I can't say, but there's probably something to that. Yeah, I had a blast. It was really fun to hang out with everyone. That's great. Other things. The balance between investors and, and folks fundraising was skewed. Virtually no investors that we didn't already know. So there were like a handful. Then I only talked through on Zoom. You'd met some of them in person. But it was cool to like hang out with them in person. But no new ones. So it's much more focused, yeah. not even on like meeting investors just like kind of learning the space and like sharing with effectively peers, people doing similar stuff in different geographies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Did one last thing about your trip, it was in Austin, right? And you're planning on moving. Did you do any house hunting? I did neighborhood hunting. So I grabbed like the electric bikes and I was like, I was initially walking and then realized Austin is not really great for walking. It's kind of big. And so I grabbed electric bikes and like just took off the ride for 10 minutes, check out a neighborhood. So I have like a list of neighborhoods I like that are all like kind of centrally located. And then next month, probably take it more serious and spend some time down there and look at houses. Nice. Cool. Well, summer is almost upon us. So it's going to be hot as balls there. So enjoy. Yeah. 200 degrees. So I'm trying to avoid that. I try not to move down there to like September, but I'll stay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. In the long run, I think it's, it's great. It'd be nice to have some heat, some sun. I don't think you're going to miss Chicago too much. Yeah. Get the last summer here. Maybe be back for summers in the future when kids are off school. So we'll see. But I guess yeah. my one other thing, as I just dominate the conversation with my topics is I'm in this SAS peer group. And so it's maybe five to 10 other people in with vertical SAS companies for the most part that are all like Generally, like five to hundred million in ARR, the most series A, B, C companies. Um, and the, we have different topics we talk about. You can't disclose most of it, but like one of the big things is AI and like, how are people using AI in their companies? And so a lot of folks for the most part are this like buying GPT plus or GPT chat GPT plus, I think it's called And it, everyone, they just try to hold out people that are used in creative ways. And so everyone has this like new tool in the arsenal and everyone's trying to figure out kind of how to use it. So it's just kind of fun to talk about how people are approaching it. Have you been using it? Yeah, I try. So I have it on my computer now is like an app icon and then I have it on my phone. And so I try not to Google stuff. I try to default to chat GPT and test it out. And that's actually pretty good. The other interesting thing I did recently is I had a blood test million numbers and then you can input it into chat gpt and like what does it tell you is basically what i ask it and then it goes down number by number and say like is this normal what does it actually mean like what does it do that's been pretty fun allegedly it's a quite a good doctor already yeah i could only imagine just from like a stats perspective like how do you interpret this by the numbers i mean obviously there's don't don't swap it out for a doctor i've been using it it's been like certain things i've found it sucks at certain things like most things though, it, it's been great. The things that I've been using for obviously code questions of like, Hey, how, 
our most recent acquisition is a very heavy SQL product, which there's tons of SQL in here. And it's just, hey, how, how can I write this in a different way? How do I efficiently change this query? And it's, it's awesome. It's an expert at my fingertips. And it'll just, sometimes it's not right, which you have to, can't just copy and paste everything. But in terms of like learning new things, asking dead end questions, like, is there, sometimes it's just hard to get an answer for things. You have to Google things. It's a stack overflow. You want to like get an expert on the phone or get paid for someone's time. It's definitely replacing that. Like, Hey, I just want to hire somebody to ask them questions that has a thousand hours of experience with XYZ library or product. And that's really hard to find the older the, the software gets. So that's been great just to be like, Hey, what's the right way to do this? Not even the right way. How could you do this using this library? How can you do this using this code? And then the last thing I've been using it for is generating unit tests and tests in general for our code that doesn't have tests. So like, how do we cover and actually been moving to a direction where if we want to build a feature, I'll go through and do the product planning a little bit in there and say, Hey, we're rolling out this feature for this product and explain what I'm doing. And it will spit out a lot of, some of it's just fluff and it has a certain bloat way of writing, but some of it is, is really great, especially the technical pieces saying, huh. here, here are the tests that you're going to want to write. And so that and enabling like a, a junior developer or an apprentice with that, you can, you can really give them a lot of support, which is where So if you had to do the test before chat GPT and now the test like after, what percent of your time do you think you're saving? How much more productive do you think you are doing that kind of thing? Especially like the first couple iterations, you're, I would be saving like four to five hours in a, in a session where, Hey, I'm going to come up with a test. You're going to come up with them, but you're. You're also going to have to look up the syntax. Let's say if you're like me and if you're like somebody in our world, you switch around from, okay, I'm in JavaScript today. I'm in Ruby tomorrow. I'm in Python the next day. I'm in, and sometimes you, you lose track of like, okay, what library am I using? I'm using this version of, and so that ability to just kind of stay on that high abstract level that I am where I'm like, yeah, I just want to write tests. I don't really care about the implementation and I don't want to go read the docs for the different test frameworks. Boom. It, it can. You, you can kind of express yourself in a universal way and it will worry about the, okay, well, you're in Mocha, so you need to express them this way and write them this way. And you can kind of step between libraries really quickly. It, it helps a great deal, I would say, in like context switching. That's the, the biggest cost that I see running these types of businesses is like everything's different and the hop from one product to the next, it, it can be difficult. So that sounds pretty extreme. Are you like, are you twice as productive? Are you five times as productive doing the test stuff? Now, these are not like every day I'm saving four to six hours. This is like once a week. I, I do find that optimization though, where it's like, hey, I can, I can get to a conclusion way faster than, and a lot of it are, are conversations around deciding, do we build something in this? Do we build something in that? What are the pros and cons? And it just rather than the alternative would be like, hey, let's, we have a weekly dev meeting. We'll talk about it then. Everybody go out and do the research, come back, put a decision doc together. That takes a week, right? It's easily a week that we come back and then we debate it. And maybe we're doing it too slowly, but we want to be exhaustive in a decision that's going to last the next eight years or something. And it's helped kind of get, get those decisions made way faster and see like, okay, what's the code going to look like if we're using this versus that? And what are the implications? And just you can accelerate those conversations a little bit faster. That's super cool. So like when this stuff first kind of started coming out, everyone's like, oh, mad, we're all, we're all out of jobs. Like all white collar work is dead. And now like this peer group, so all these CEOs and you and my 
like, whoa, actually, we just be way more productive. And this is like a crazy tool for everyone to use. Much yeah. more optimistic than like doom and gloom against Washington initially. Yeah, I, I really don't buy it. I mean, I'm not pessimist, not terribly pessimistic around it. I don't, I think if it, it is going to be disruptive and we can't deny that, but I think there's a lot of like, you're going to see people that embrace it and figure out the ways to use it. And it's going to be part of, part of the tool set. And it's hopefully it's going to get better as well. I know a lot of folks are on auto GPT and all these different sort of variations of it. And, but I'm really just using it to help me with the things that I suck at. That's what I think everybody should use it for or the things I don't really like to spend my time doing. Like I don't really like doing like writing tickets or product management, like slash slash project management tasks, like keeping the Trello board up to date and grooming things. It's like, I got to really force myself. So it helps to have a little grease with chat GPT. Like, Hey, can you help me be a little bit more productive? And then it's more fun. Right. And so I think that's where I'm hoping other people will see the value in it. So I've done something similar in like help docs, filling out help docs, and you can just kind of put in some bullet points and like, hey, fill out this full help doc. It's pretty amazing. at that. Like 10% of it is hallucinating and doesn't make any sense to like make up an email address, but uh, it saves you a tremendous amount of time for that like boring yeah. task for the most part. Yeah. And I'd rather edit, like I'd much rather edit the bullshit out than it's, it's really hard to, to get, especially writing zero to one, which I think is. Again, where other people are also going to see that value of like, okay, well, if I had a three-page essay, I can edit that down in 30 minutes versus it would take me days to write the three-page essay and then start editing it down. Yeah. Cool. Anything else you want to cover? No, that's that's what's all going on here in, in May. Nice. All right. Well, take care, everyone. Thanks for listening.